Pidcast, a podcast brought to you by the Piddington Society. This is a special edition of the Pidcast. Our names are Amy, Rihanna and Amara and we are 2020 Pid grads. This is a mini-series opening discussions relating to advocacy and criminal law with judicial officers of the Supreme and District Courts of Western Australia. This is episode one, part one. Episode one is our Supreme Court episode. In part one, we get to know Justice Quinlan, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Western Australia. Justice Mazza, Justice of the Western Australian Court of Appeal, Justice Corboy, Justice of the Supreme Court of Western Australia, and the Honourable Lindy Jenkins, former Justice of the Supreme Court of Western Australia. Their honours talk to us about their careers generally and discuss looking after yourself when working in criminal law. We've um, devised these rapid fire questions to kind of break the ice and so that everyone can kind of get to know you a little bit better. Um, so who, who would first. like to I'll go first. Justice Okay. Um, so the first question is, if you had not pursued a career in law, what job would you be doing instead? Well, I love stationery. <laughs> So I'd love to own an office works or I'd like to be a fountain pen retailer or at a completely different tack, I'd like to be a film critic, but I think I'd be bad at that. I think you'd be a great film critic. Lots of films. Well, Coen Brothers films, any films. I love films. I, I, any films you can think of, I, I, I enjoy. My favourite film and it's been a favourite since I was a kid, well, is Lawrence of Arabia. I go back to that film many, many times, and uh, I like it mainly because of the way it looks. Mm. It is a beautiful film, not done with any green screen. Uh, it just, and, and it's a gripping story. Mm. Although not many women. Not many women. And so the second question is, what is your go-to coffee order? Uh, strong, skinny, flat white. Um, and the third question is, who are the three guests, dead or alive, real or fictional, who you would invite to your ultimate dinner party? Uh, they're all John F. Kennedy, David Bowie, and Dorothy Parker. Uh, Chief Justice Quinlan, uh, the first question, if you had not pursued a career in law, what job would you be doing instead? Well, I'm a bit jealous that uh, Justice Maz has already taken uh, film critic. <laughs> uh, so I am going to quote and rely upon the great David St. Hubbins from Spinal Tap <laughs> and say, I'd be a full-time dreamer. <laughs> um, the second question is, what is your go-to coffee order? It is a long black with three shots. Um, and the third question is, who are the three guests, dead or alive, real or fictional, who you would invite to your ultimate dinner party? I would have the American novelist Flannery O'Connor, I would have St. Teresa of Avila, and I would have Bob Dylan. <laughs> but I would want Bob Dylan to be in a good mood. I'm a little Lindy Jenkins, so we'll start with you first. If you had not pursued law, what job would you have done instead? I always wanted to be a clothes tailor. Yeah, make, make suits. <laughs> Do you have the talent to be able to do that? To make suits? I had some belief that if I practised, I'd be able to do it. What is your coffee order? He'll tell you what my coffee order is. Flat white. And who are the three guests, dead or alive, real or fictional, you would invite to your ultimate dinner party? How long have you got? (laughs) (laughs) Because I've thought a lot about this. I've come up with three names, but they're just three amongst hundreds. So um, Hillary Clinton... Because really, I'd love to cross-examine her um, about you know why she stayed with Bill. Uh, that just really intrigues me. 
But also uh, she has uh, both lived and worked through some remarkable times. Um, Captain Cook, because I'm reading um, currently um, uh, Geoffrey Blaney's book about Captain Cook. It's the 250th anniversary of his uh, voyage uh, to Australia and New Zealand. And he, I think, is representative of not so much an adventurer, but as someone who set out into the unknown um, in a poorly, you know, small ship, poorly prepared in a lot of ways, and had no idea what he was going to find, was away for years. I mean, I just think that's amazing. And um, thirdly, I recently heard a young Indigenous man, Isaiah Dorr, um, speak, and was a foster um, child in New South Wales, had 17 placements, had a terribly disadvantaged uh, childhood and now has started a uh, program for uh, mentoring Indigenous foster children in New South Wales and he was, I thought he he was just fascinating. Um, He's had a, you know, his life has been amazing up to date and he obviously has some, you know, very positive ideas about Indigenous issues and I would love to hear them. Justice Cowboy, if you had not pursued law, what job would you have done instead? Um, well, in a purely selfish way, of course, the ideal job is to be a professional golfer until you're about 70 because you can play, earn a lot of money and wander around in beautiful scenic places around the world. Given that I didn't have any talent to play golf, I would have liked to have done paediatrics, been a paediatrician. So that would be the more sensible alternative. What is your coffee order? Black white. And who are the three guests, dead or alive, real or fictional, that you would invite to your ultimate dinner? All right, so my answer's long as well. So <laughs> purely personally... And he hasn't thought about it. He me, hasn't thought about it. <laughs> purely personally, my paternal grandparents who both died around the time I was born and who cast a shadow across my early childhood just so I could understand an awful lot about my early childhood, which remains a mystery to me. Being more along her honours lines, then the great inventions of our century, I think, were the unravelling of DNA, and there was a woman, Rosalind Franklin, um, Alan Turing, because of the origin of the computer and understanding the computer, maybe Robert Oppenheimer, because of the development of the Manhattan Project and then what happened to him after. <laughs> so, that's, that's three scientific. <laughs> And then if you had a comedy night, Lenny Bruce, oh, yeah. yep, Spike Milligan, and anybody from Monty Python apart from John Cleese. We're now going to move over to the substantive episode-focused questions, and I'm going to ask you questions about your careers specifically. So how did your careers in specifically the criminal law begin? Uh, well, um, I started my life working uh, within the Crown Solicitor's Office, but didn't do a, didn't have a lot to do with crime in the first couple of years. Uh, really, my first uh, real interaction with crime was as a judge's associate in the Supreme Court, being the clerk of arraigns and impanelling juries and matters of that kind. Uh, then I did a bit of um, prosecuting for a while at the Crown Solicitor's Office, and then I would probably what would be described as a dabbler in crime when I was at the bar. I didn't do, I didn't, I didn't focus on it, but uh, I did enough of it during the time that I was there to be able to uh, 
maintain the interest in it, but uh, I've probably done more crime since I've been on the bench over two years than uh, than I did uh, while I was at um, at the private bar. So my career in criminal law began when I was a kid because my dad, uh, Jim Mazza, was a criminal lawyer. I mean, he was more than a criminal lawyer, but that was his specialty and that's what uh, he had a reputation for. And uh, so I used to go to the office with him when I was a really small child, particularly on Saturday mornings. In those days, law firms opened on Saturdays. Uh, so from that point onwards, I was really sort of steeped in, in the practice of the criminal law. Uh, and when I was at school, uh, I would come in and watch trials with him. And when I was a law student, uh, I did the same thing. I clerked for him and then he and I worked together right up until virtually the day he died. So um, I began really with my father and he taught me everything that I know. So at a young age, um, I'd seen a lot of criminal proceedings um, from the magistrate's court uh, right up until to, to the high court. So I was, I was very fortunate that that's how I began and I never really... Uh, thought about doing anything else. Well, I can say mine began badly. <laughs> that should be an inspiration to young practitioners. Uh, I did a plea in mitigation for a client. Luckily, it wasn't a very serious offence, but I was so sort of nervous and keen that I um, started my plea in mitigation before the prosecutor had read the facts. <laughs> and um, the magistrate was in front of magistrate and he sort of tried to tell me this, I think, two or three times before I finally <laughs> tweaked <laughs> and it was not my turn. <laughs> well, I probably didn't have a career in criminal law as such, so most of my career I was a commercial litigator and commercial barrister. But when I first started, I did articles with Bob French. And French's practice was probably about 50% criminal law at the time. So for my articles and restrictive practice year and then... The, um, I was in partnership with Bob for about 18 months. I did criminal law at that stage and that was everything. So really, I suppose when I was an article clerk then my criminal law career began by voluntary work. There used to be a scheme that was run by legal aid where you'd spend two weeks, three times a year in a court of petty sessions as they were in those days or down in the children's court just giving advice every morning. So I can remember, I think I chalked up one day, 55 pleas in mitigation in a day. But did you have any mentors in your career and how important is the role of a mentor in a practitioner's career? I was going to say I was too, I'm too old to, you know, mentors weren't um, no. invented when I was a young practitioner. Uh, so no, I didn't have a mentor. I think it's very important to have role models, um, people who you can look up to and say well I want ultimately to be like them and so you can model yourself on them and in, in a lot of ways that's mentoring as well if you are working alongside those people and generally speaking they will assist you in what you're doing so I think it's very important to have people like that in your life if they or you your career if they are also um, you know prepared to mentor you, then that's even better. Um, yeah, I didn't have any mentors. 
And I think that's probably one aspect of my career which is um, a cause of great regret. So I think mentoring is very important. Role models, yes, although I learned by junioring and watching. Um, luckily enough to junior some very good silks when I first started out. But more, I think it's important, certainly when you start out, but I think for most of your career, that there is somebody who you can go and talk to and talk to about yourself. Um, because I think there are things about yourself in the practice of law that you want to talk to somebody about and to do so in a way which is introspective um, and about the way in which practice affects you, what you're doing, the uncertainties that everybody experiences in the practice of law and being able to talk to somebody just about how it affects you and you personally, I think is actually very important. I think that probably is the best antidote to the pressures of practicing. Good lawyers are inherently uncertain. Good lawyers never are absolutely certain that they know the answer. So that uncertainty, that doubt, which I think good lawyers have, also has a, an emotional cost. And I think somebody who can listen to you and who understands what it's like to be a lawyer, I think is very important. Well, obviously my father was my mentor, but because my father also had uh, close personal professional friends who were criminal lawyers, such as the late Henry Walwork, and then later, the late justice, former justice, uh, Jeffrey Miller. I had a number of mentors. I mean, they're, they're incredibly important because they inspire you, but they also are people that you can talk to and you respect and trust. Uh, and any mentor, I think, has to have not only ability in a particular field, but also with someone you can trust so that you can you know, spill your heart uh, to them and be able to get good advice. And I was up, have not been so lucky, but if you can get a mentor, particularly somebody who's trustworthy, who's completely ethical and whose um, judgment uh, is good, get that person. Chief Justice, do you share those views? I do. Um, I think that the relationship between the senior practitioner and the junior practitioner in a profession um, is in many respects the defining way in which you become a, a good professional. There's an expression that's sometimes used in the context of religious faith, that it's, it's, it's caught rather than taught. That's the same as good professionalism. You, you learn it by almost by a, a process of osmosis, by being around people who do it well. And um, it can be quite um, difficult to explain that process un until you've been in it and come out the other side and see uh, that, you know, you will often say about a lawyer, um, you know, use expressions like, they get it, uh, which is kind of describing that intangible thing that you that you really do get from a um, 
a proper um, mentor-mentee relationship or however however you might describe it. So I think it, it, it's absolutely critical. Um, it's why they used to have, and to some extent it's, it's a little sad that it's passed, but the idea of being an article clerk was that you would be signed on to a particular person who would be the person who would instill the profession into you and you know to the point that you'd sit in their room and just watch them be a professional and that somehow you'd catch that rather than having it taught to you do you have any tips on how to find a good mentor i think in our profession there there are often occasions where you interact with people on a professional level if you see somebody uh, who is somebody who you admire or that you feel that you could learn something from, the fact that you are admiring them and inspired by them probably means that they are going to respond positively if you say, I would like to talk to you about things in my career. And, and I certainly know that um, that's how a lot of the people who I would describe as having... Uh, that I've sort of mentored, how I've developed the relationship. They've, they've literally sent me an email saying, could I have a coffee with you? Um, uh, and also, I think mentors find you. I think that, that also also happened to me. The people who are my mentors tended to, tended to find me, and it's a matter of paying attention to those opportunities. I think people are very anxious to get mentors and I think you can be a little bit too anxious. Uh, and you know, like all friendships, you can't force it. Mm. Uh, and I think some people are more amenable to being mentors than others. I think nowadays you've got to be a bit more forward about it and uh, the approach of, you know, can we talk? Is, is, is a good approach. In some sense, the relationship has to be sort of you know, made, can be match made. You, know, you can't go online and get a, <laughs> a, a mentor. Uh, and I think sometimes you're a bit forced. It's a bit like friendship. It only yeah. works because it's gone into freely. Yeah. I mean, there's something about the free... Um, the freedom of the relationship that that makes it work. I think one of the aspects of it is that sometimes a, a young lawyer is forced, for want of a better word, into a relationship with a mentor that that person actually doesn't quite respect or that person is, is, is not at the seniority that they need to be in order to be an effective how has the transition from the bar to the bench and has the transition in any way altered your view of the operation of criminal law? The transition for me was um, I went from the amalgam to the district court. So that was my first judicial appointment. I mean, I felt very comfortable with that because I did a lot of my work both as defence counsel and as a prosecutor in the district court. I knew the jurisdiction I knew a lot of the judges, if not all of the judges. So going there was a, a very positive experience. That was, that was uh, not a big transition, although 
it is a big thing to be an advocate and to make submissions and it's another thing a more serious thing to actually have to make decisions and for a criminal lawyer to actually have to sentence people so i i, I found that a, a, a difficult and awesome i mean that in a literal sense thing to do and a very serious thing to do and i still find it uh, I don't have to sentence people directly anymore, uh, apart from resentencing and state appeals. But I find it still a very difficult thing to do, knowing the effect that that will have upon uh, the offender. So that that that's where the transition was most marked for me. The other one is just a is a physical one. I, remember walking into court and just the perspective of looking down as you so often are on counsel and remembering that I wasn't counsel so I remember in my first or oh, few district court trials calling counsel my friend my learned friend <laughs> and, you know, so there were things like that where we used to well I'm I'm more of a newbie so I suppose in some respects I'm still in transition uh, from from the bar table to the bench. Uh, and so I'm still finding the transition um, invigorating and enjoyable. Um, and I too, of course, arrived in a, in a different position in a different environment, but was really fortunate to have uh, a whole lot of people uh, on the court who uh, were able to give me assistance in in working my way through what being a judge was, and I still do. Um, I was pretty fortunate just from a job transition that I had the period of time as Solicitor General because it, it, it is kind of a transitional position because you're still uh, a lawyer, but you've got a public statutory position you're kind of the interface between the executive government, the judicial branch of government. So um, I got to understand better, as it were, the, the behind-the-scenes aspect of the judiciary, which helped. Um, for the criminal law, um, and really the law generally, but certainly in the criminal law, um, I've always regarded being a lawyer and participating in the legal system as a serious business in the sense that I've never thought of it as a game uh, and I've always tried to be conscious of the fact that um, you've always got real people with real problems uh, and that, that you have got a great responsibility to, to try and deal with those problems. I, I think the transition, one of the transitions to the bench is that that, that sense of seriousness of the of what we do is elevated one one step further and I, and I think as um, justice Mazza says the 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 process of sentencing somebody I don't think and I would be very surprised if there were there were many judges who would disagree with this but I think you'll always remember the first person that you had to send to jail uh, because uh, it, it's an, it is, as Justice Mazza said, an awesome thing that your words have 
a um, defining life-changing effect on another person? Uh, you know, once I learned when to bow, and, uh, <laughs> when to leave, and when to come in, uh, fairly easy to be honest. Um, uh, there's obviously a completely different perspective from the bench, um, and that it. I don't think it alters has altered my perception of the criminal law. I suppose you do. I suppose now I think about it, reflecting. I suppose you do have a when you counsel, you think probably that the judicial function is different, easier than it actually <laughs> is. Um, so in that respect, I suppose I learned how hard it was to be a judge and to make decisions. Um, I think I agree with all of that. I mean, for me, because although I did some crime when I first started and I do do a little bit of crime when I was at the bar because my background was as a commercial litigator and then I came into criminal law as a judge. The transition for me initially was really more about being uncertain as to whether I knew enough. So I think probably for the first 18 months to two years I thought any moment something's going to happen. And everybody in the courtroom, apart from me, is going to know what should happen next. And I'm going to look at them and they're going to look at me and they'll expect me to know the answer and I'll have no idea. That part of the transition was quite difficult. I'm writing some judgments now, having sat as a judge alone, and I think that's having a bigger impact on my perspective on the criminal law than when I just started as a judge. And as a judge... You're concerned to ensure it's a fair trial, that the evidence that is admitted gets in and should be admitted, that the jury, in other words, hear what they should hear in order to be able to determine. You feel protective of the jury in a way you never did as counsel. That's one big difference. You do feel much more protective of the jury and much more concerned that the jury hears evidence which you know is relevant and that they should hear. But... My perspective on the criminal law in terms of the complexity and the reasoning process to arrive at the verdict has been quite significantly affected by having to actually sit down and spell out step by step how I've arrived at a verdict and how that makes you acutely aware of the notion of beyond reasonable doubt and acutely aware of making judgment calls that we expect juries to make and which I think juries should make. Become more aware, I think, of the notion that a jury trial is a much more democratic process. It's much more consistent with our democratic ideal than judge alone, I think. So um, we just wanted to round out the interview by asking you some questions about um, how you live a life outside of the law as well. Um, so the first question specifically was um, in the context of criminal law, because we're often dealing with quite confronting subject matter. Um, how do you go about dealing with that sort of stuff um, so that you don't end up with things like vicarious trauma and burnout in the long run? Uh, it's interesting. I've been thinking much more about this topic um, in the last few years for two reasons. One, because I've become more conscious of the fact that my staff have been uh, exposed to things which I think could give rise to vicarious trauma. The other thing is that as I've got older, for myself, I'm beginning to think that I notice it more personally. Uh, so what do I do? Um, 
it's always good to talk about things. So it's always good to talk about it with colleagues. Uh, and you don't need to do it in a necessarily serious way. Uh, I mean, although it is very serious business, you, you, you know, you can come in and say, look, I won't believe what I've seen today. I mean, sometimes that's not an appropriate response because sometimes it's just so bad you can't even respond in that way. Um, so, but, but I think talking, and this is where we go back to mentors where we started, I think mentors help you with that because usually a mentor is going to be someone who's seen it too. Uh, the, the other thing is that um, I, th I think that if you need to, you should get professional assistance. And uh, I mean, I haven't done that, but I, I, and once upon a time I would have completely eschewed it. Uh, but now I can see that it has benefit. Uh, and I think judges uh, are seeing that too. So I think we're, we're in a new age of, of realising that these things do have an effect. It also helps to have a interest outside of law, to have good relationships, uh, to, to be fit and, and, and you know, have some other interests and, and, and to be able to put it physically away from yeah i i was thinking talking is a is a really important aspect of just getting it out um and colleagues and and, and other confidants are, are good for that um you need to be careful that you're not you're not doing it to people and and, and perpetuating vicarious trauma uh uh, but there are there are ways to find the right occasions and the right format within which to talk those sorts of things out. I think also you need to be um, you need to develop a certain um, self awareness and introspection to be able to notice when things are affecting you. Uh, I never say don't be emotional or don't have emotional reactions to things, because that's completely inhuman. What you should do is notice when you are having an emotional reaction to something uh, and process it in such a way that you're able to do the job that you have to do properly. And that's what, that's what I mean by having a, developing a certain um, habit of of introspection where you can notice, put it aside, talk to somebody, something like that. So I think uh, that attentiveness to, to what's going on inside you is an incredibly important aspect of keeping, um, uh, keeping a level head amongst some of the work we have to do. Oh, well, I, I just think that if it worries you too much, you probably aren't suited to criminal law and you should f find another area of practice. Uh, I think that it's a good thing to be a sensitive person. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and criminal law probably is suited to people who are capable of uh, not being affected to a great extent by uh, terrible human tragedy and suffering. Yeah, I think there's an element of truth in that, definitely. So the, I think the test becomes for young practitioners when, if you're acting for an accused person and they're found guilty, how many times you can take that 
And if you can, there used to be the tradition that after your client was found guilty on an indictable offence, they'd be taken to the cells, which in the old Supreme Court building used to be downstairs, and you'd have to go down and see your client downstairs. You very quickly find out whether or not you've got the stomach for it, because that's the hard part rather than the subject matter. You can compartmentalise that because it is part of your job. The harder part is the personal relationship that you have with your client if you're acting as defence counsel and you very quickly find out whether or not you can deal with that. And then the hard part for a judge and probably again for counsel, I think the emotional part of it is, is the sentencing on both sides. For what we do um, in homicide because you'll have the victim's family there and the, the loss to that family, I find is probably the hardest thing that we do. That's the most emotional thing. And I think a good prosecutor also understands that because you have to understand the complexity that's involved in sentencing, whichever end of the bar tab you're at, to be a good criminal lawyer and to know what ought to happen as a matter of justice. Um, that's the emotional side of criminal law and you can either cope with it, understand it or as Her Honour says or as Whitney says, you probably, I like to still call you yeah, Her Honour. That's fine. Um, <laughs> that's why I come in here because people still call me judge. <laughs> um, Justice Mads, I think you touched on this a little bit already um, in terms of having hobbies and things that you, you do outside of the law but um, do you have any tips for maintaining a healthy work-life balance? Um, I, I, yeah, well, I've made it my business uh, to stay as physically fit as I can. Uh, I run. I don't really like running. But <laughs> I don't really like running, but I, I, I like it more than swimming, which mm -hmm. I hate. Um, so, so I've done that. I've also, I still blunder around on a, on a hockey field on Saturdays. Heard you got a hat trick the other yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> easiest, easiest hat trick in hockey history. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's been good for me. And also, you know, I, I mean, I, it's the theme of my life that I've been very lucky in, in a whole lot of things. I've been very lucky, you know, in my marriage, my family life, uh, I've been lucky with my friendships, uh, although I don't put as much time in those as, as I'd like to. But you know, you've got to just have a life outside the law. You can't, you just can't be immersed in the law seven days a week, twenty-four hours a day. So yeah, so that's that's you know how I've done it, and I've got other interests. You know, I, I try and read widely. I said earlier, you know, I love watching films. Netflix is good. You know, those sorts of things, um, Netflix or Stan or uh, Amazon Prime or all the other things that I waste my money on. Um, so, so I think it's important just to have that. The, the other thing is, uh, as the Chief Justice has said, the work that we do is serious. There's, there's just, you know, you, you can't trivialise the work that you, you know, as other people have said it in these sort of situations, you can't take yourself too seriously. So, so don't, don't do that. It seems to me that the your human relationships are the single most important feature of the balance in your life generally. Um, uh, 
there can be a bit of a danger with some of the metaphors we use about work-life balance. Uh, firstly, the balance makes it sound like a scale. So you've got to put this much on this side and this much on this side to have it. Or the other metaphor that's often used is juggling. Mm. My family <laughs> life is one ball, my work is one ball, my health is... And you've got to juggle them or they'll all fall down. Um, I like to think of the better metaphor as being like a jigsaw puzzle, that they've got to all fit together. Um, so that, yes, you've got, to, you've got to have the things other than the law, but your life's got to fit together as a coherent whole. So I'm not, I'm not sort of um, uh, a judge from uh, during work hours and then a husband and father in non-work hours, but I'm both at all times. Um, so that you're bringing all aspects of your life. Nothing worse for people, I think, I think career-wise, for people who wish their lives away about where they want to get, you know? People who, for somebody who thinks, I've got this work, and all I'm going to do is plan and think about the next holiday I'm going to have in six months' time. Because then you're always living somewhere else or that I'll be happy once I become a partner or I'll be happy once I move to here. You've got to see the work that you're doing each day as important. Sometimes in keeping that jigsaw going, the work pieces are a bit bigger than the others, but you, it, it's a constantly changing thing. But I think keeping that integrity of the whole thing is, is what you want to try and keep an eye on. There are going to be times where y your work consumes you. So if you're going to do a long trial, um, you know your work is probably going to is, is going to be a um, is going to be the priority. It's going to be the one thing that you're probably you're living with, you're sleeping with it all the time. Uh, but there are also going to be times where you know you, you, your outside life, your family life. Is also, you know, it, it, that's the thing that's foremost in your mind, and your work is somewhere else. And the most fortunate thing you can have are human relationships in your life where those people know when you're in one yeah, stage and when you're in another. Uh, that what. When you need to be held up and, and when you need to be doing the holding up. And I think that, that, you know, that's not something that you can particularly work for. That's just a gift that you get along the way. But um, uh, that's right. I mean, sometimes it is all-consuming, uh, but it won't be forever. I've got to say, I don't have any tips for that. Um... It's just something you've got to keep working at, it seems to me. You've always got to be trying to keep some perspective about your life and realising that you know, it's not all about work. But that's very hard when you're at work a lot of the time and um, just thinking about it a lot of the time. I just think it's incredibly difficult to do if you're 
focused on your work, not to be too focused on it. Um, so you've got to, yeah, keep working on it and keep listening to people who are telling you you're working too hard. And uh, when people are telling you you're working too hard, you've got to uh, stop and reassess what you what you're doing. And remember that personal relationships are a lot more important at the end of the day than um, what you do at work. Even if what you do at work is very important, um, your family's far more important. Um, well, at the risk of being hypocritical, don't over-worry. So, again, 95% of cases are determined according to the evidence. You know better than the evidence. So. Preparation, yes. Endless worry, yes. But in the end... You just said to... don't over-worry. <laughs> well, I was going to say... Endless worry. <laughs> Amy will understand this. There's an associate for whom I have said that when I retire, the job I'm actually going to do is I'm going to manufacture T-shirts under the label Perfectionist Tyranny. From Amy, Rihanna and Amara, we wanted to say thank you for listening to this podcast mini-series. We extend our sincere gratitude to our honourable guests, the Piddington Society, and all those who assisted in the production of this series. Without wanting to sound too cliche, if you liked the content, then please like, subscribe, and or leave us some feedback.